Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, we're hearing how researchers are diagnosing diseased plants from afar and looking at the link between air pollution and infant mortality in sub-Saharan Africa. Plus, we'll be learning how newly formed neurons influence how mice respond to stress. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Air pollution causes a vast number of deaths across the globe. But what is that number? Back in 2015, atmospheric scientist Jos Lelyveld told The Nature Podcast about his research on the lives air pollution claims. This is an astounding number of more than 3 million premature deaths per year worldwide uh, related to air pollution. It's quite much higher than, than HIV AIDS and also, uh, for, for example, malaria. Jos calculated this huge figure by using modelling to capture a global picture of pollution and connect this to pollutants' documented impact on health. But such a global picture can't fully describe important regional details. And this week, a study is coming out focusing on air quality in a region that's often been overlooked. What struck us was that most of these studies were in middle or high-income countries. This is Jen Burney, one of the authors of this week's paper. So we, we look at sub-Saharan Africa in this study, and, and that stands out for having um, very little data really on how much damage air pollution is causing. Jen and her colleagues set out to fill in some of the gaps to understand how air pollution affects infant mortality in sub-Saharan Africa. But there's a reason the health effects of air pollution are studied so little in this region. There just isn't as much on-the-ground air quality data as in, say, Western Europe. To get around this, the team used remote sensing, teasing apart observations from satellites to estimate the air quality at ground level. They then gathered 65 surveys that capture household health. Carefully combining these two datasets allowed the team to compute the link between the deaths of infants and air pollution. 
Our study here shows that air pollution is actually a much more important cause of excess mortality in sub-Saharan Africa than, than previously thought. And we find that particulate matter pollution is responsible for more than 20% of infant deaths uh, in our study countries. And that exposure to that pollution led to about 400,000 excess infant deaths in that region in 2015 alone. We were surprised to see an effect that was so large and so much larger than existing estimates of mortality. So this is um, this is somewhat sobering in terms of what what air pollution really does and what the benefits might be from mitigating it. Jen isn't the only one who found these results sobering. I called up Jos, who authored the 2015 study, to get his thoughts on these new figures. It is quite an amazing result that has been presented in this paper. And uh, the number of uh, premature deaths in infants is, is really large. But uh, it is a very serious, um, a very serious warning of uh, what needs to be done to protect the health of, um, of uh, children. This result may be a serious warning, but it's one of many that seek to quantify deaths from poor air quality. How, then, does it fit with Yoss's 2015 calculation that around 3 million people die from air pollution globally per year? If I now compare this study, we find that, uh, that the numbers have gone up tremendously. So there is a large number of deaths that we have not yet accounted for properly. Jen and her colleague's study may be accounting for additional deaths because they're not assuming air pollution kills people solely through respiratory infections. Instead, the method simply looks at the relationship between infant deaths and the quality of the air. Their results are substantially larger than the numbers of deaths attributed to respiratory infections. And that does suggest that there may be pathways that are not just respiratory. Uh, some of it could also just be that we're only now uncovering these other channels of impact. Jos agrees that looking beyond respiratory problems is key to understanding the full impact of air pollution. And of course more research is needed to pinpoint what these other causes are, but I think uh, uh, determining that there is a problem here is, um, is, is already a very important first step. But this study doesn't just show how many infants are dying in sub-Saharan Africa as a result of poor air quality. It sketches out the relationship between infant mortality and pollution levels. And this shows the impacts that improving air quality could have. One of the conclusions is also that, um, you know, with modest decreases of air pollution, one can achieve at least the um, improvement in health burden or disease burden in Africa uh, that, has, that is being invested for other diseases. Air pollution is something that needs to be put higher up the agenda. Uh, because actually with relatively little means, one can already do a lot. But at present, it's all too easy for policymakers around the world to do little about air pollution. There's a disconnect between the cause and the death. But Jen hopes that studies like hers and Yoss's will help make the damage caused by air pollution that much more visible. It's, it's one thing to know that poor air quality is bad for health, and it's another to be able to say that more than 20% of infant deaths in Sub-Saharan Africa in 2015 were due to excess pollution. Um, and to be able to estimate what the benefits would be for uh, a given amount of mitigation. So we really do hope that by, uh, by providing this kind of cost-benefit analysis in some ways that we can incentivize uh, more action on air quality. That was Jen Burney of the University of California, San Diego in the US, 
and before her, Jos Lelyveld, who's based at the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Germany. To hear our podcast on Jos's study, have a listen to the episode from the 17th of September 2015. Next up, reporter Noah Baker has been investigating a new way to monitor a devastating plant disease. Xylella fastidiosa is a plant disease which in recent years has devastated olive crops in southern Italy. It's also been the focus of significant political controversy. We've covered that in the podcast in the past. Anyway, politics aside, the battle to control Xylella infections across Europe has continued. In this month's issue of Nature Plants, there's a paper describing a new weapon in the arsenal, a tool to detect infection from the air. Here's Pablo Zarco Tejada from the Joint Research Centre, part of the European Commission, with more. Silella fastidiosa is considered one of the most dangerous plant pathogens worldwide. The bacterial infection originated in America and was officially identified in Europe in 2013. Part of why it's so feared is because it can infect loads of different plant species, many of which have massive economic value. In America, it's been uh, recorded that uh, it, it uh, affected uh, citrus, uh, vineyards uh, as well. And the arrival in, in Europe uh, has been extremely devastating for the case of olive orchards. In mainland Spain, it's affecting almonds. The problem is that Silella uh, fastidiosa can uh, affect uh, more than 300 uh, different species. There's no known cure for Zylella. The only approach to combat the disease is to destroy infected trees in the hope of containing its spread. But before that can be done, infected plants must be diagnosed. In the long term, we will see um, uh, defoliation, uh, we will see leaf wilting, and we will also detect uh, chlorosis. I mean, a reduction of uh, chlorophyll concentration that uh, can be easily detected by our eyes. But as I, as I said, this is in the, in the longer term. In the short term, there are physiological changes that uh, are detectable, but uh, we cannot really see it dir- directly with our eyes in the field. And it's these pre-visual changes which Pablo wants to detect. You see, once the plant shows visible symptoms, it's already infectious. But if you can catch the infection earlier, you stand a better chance of containing it. So how do you see symptoms which are invisible to the eye? One solution, use more sensitive eyes, namely cameras, in particular hyperspectral cameras. We scan the surface from uh, manned or unmanned uh, vehicles, I mean even with drones, using hyperspectral sensors. These hyperspectral sensors uh, scan the spectrum from the visible up to the near-infrared in uh, what we call narrow spectral bands that are sensitive to specific uh, biochemical constituents. By analyzing the hyperspectral data and also thermal data obtained by thermal cameras, we have been able to detect the way some of the plant traits are affected and detected before our eyes can see it in the field. Hyperspectral cameras mounted on drones or planes can detect tiny changes in the levels of pigments in the leaves. This information can be compared with knowledge gained from laboratory studies about how pigments change during Zylella infection. Pablo and his team feed all this hyperspectral data, along with other data such as temperature changes, into a model. The results of the two-year analysis with the 
evaluating more than 7,000 trees in the field and on our images is that we can detect if a tree is affected by Salella fastidiosa with uh, accuracies over 80%. Now, it's important to note that even more accurate diagnoses can be made by taking samples from trees and testing them in the lab, but that's not necessarily practical. Here's Anna-Katrin Marline from the Institute of Sugar Beet Research in Germany. So the farmer can't be everywhere, so sometimes we have farms which have a quite large size and the farmer is not able to monitor and observe each field on its, on its own, so therefore it would be helpful to have these kind of remote sensing technologies. And um, also not every farmer is uh, an expert and one could be much more accurate if uh, we use these kind of non-invasive sensors. And it isn't just cameras on flying vehicles. The options for remote sensing are much broader. Yeah, so there are many new developments regarding robotics um, right now. So there are autonomous vehicles which can drive over your field. They can be equipped with a camera. The camera can take a picture and you can obtain the information from your robot, for example. So what's next for Pablo's system? Well, his research is produced with the European Commission, but how it's used or implemented is down to the individual EU member states. Here's Pablo. Uh, what we are doing here at the GRC is to develop methodologies that will help the member states in order to better uh, monitor and quantify and detect uh, the presence of the disease in their areas. There's also a lot of interest in technologies like Pablo's from private companies. Here's Anna-Katrin again. That's a very interesting um, movement right now. So more and more digital technologies find a way to technical or technological development and um, different companies invest um, money and and projects in these kind of technologies. And therefore, it is expected that um, it will be available for the farmer more and more in near future. But um, most of the work which is published is basic research and the next step would be to provide it to the farmer. That was Anna-Katrine Marlein from the Institute for Sugar Beet Research in Germany. Before her, you heard Pablo Zarco Tejada from the Joint Research Centre, part of the European Commission. You can read Pablo's paper over at nature.com forward slash nplants. Later in the show, it's the news chat where we'll be discussing plans to harness bacteria to fight disease. Before that, Benjamin Thompson is here with this week's research highlights. Researchers in China have created a super hydrophobic material from eggshells, capable of withstanding radiation, corrosive liquids and abrasion. Super hydrophobic materials have a range of uses, for example, creating self-cleaning windows or filtering water from oil, but many existing options are fragile. The team behind this new work may have cracked that problem by collecting eggs from local supermarkets and mixing them first with stearic acid and then with zinc oxide particles. The resulting material showed extraordinary stability, retaining its ability to repel water even after being attacked by sandpaper, strongly acidic or alkaline solutions and UV radiation. The researchers hope that the material will provide new ideas for real-world applications for superhydrophobic technologies. Read this exciting research over at Advanced Engineering Materials. Oak trees can survive for hundreds of years and are important in many cultures, often used as symbols of strength and endurance. Researchers have now proposed that these trees' longevity may be down to duplications in their DNA. In the new work, a team of researchers sequenced the genome of the pendunculate oak and compared it to the genomes of other plants, 
including soya and peach. They revealed that between 60 and 80 million years ago, a large number of the oak's genes were duplicated. Many of these genes are involved in disease resistance, which may help the trees reach such old ages. Leaf through that work over at Nature Plants. Working on the Nature Podcast is a pretty fun job, but I must admit I've had a bit of a full-on week. I've got a lot going on, I haven't really been getting enough sleep. So far I seem to be coping with this admittedly minorly stressful situation and it'll certainly pass, but stress and being stressed can have more serious effects. Someone who's interested in the neuroscience behind stress is Christoph Annika from Columbia University in the US. I gave him a call to find out about his latest research. So what we've known from previous clinical studies is that psychological stress is a major risk factor for psychiatric disorders, such as anxiety and depression. But we also know that not every individual who experiences stress will ultimately also go on to develop a psychiatric disorders. So what we wanted to know was what is different in the brain of individuals who are vulnerable to the effects of stress compared to the brains of individuals who are resilient to stress. Because if we can understand what makes some individuals resilient and while others become uh, susceptible to stress, then perhaps we can find new ways to target these mechanisms of resiliency in order to develop new treatments for psychiatric disorders or even preventative measures. And in particular, the focus of your study is a region of the brain called the dentate gyrus, um, and, and you're studying this in mice. So what does this area do? So the dentate gyrus region of the brain is a subregion of the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a brain region that is mostly known for its role in learning and memory, but it has more recently also been implicated in the regulation of stress responses and emotional behaviour. And, and one of the, the interesting things about the dentate gyrus is that certainly in mice, there are new brain cells being made there, even in adulthood. So how much are these new cells involved in the dentate gyrus um, and it, it mediating stress responses? Yeah, so what we know from previous studies is that, for example, these newborn brain cells in the dentate gyrus can reduce anxiety-like behavior. But what we didn't know was how these new brain cells actually influence the function of the dentate gyrus. And the formation of new neurons is called neurogenesis. So how did you go about studying the effects of neurogenesis in mice? So we used actually mice that have a genetic modification which causes them to produce more of these new brain cells. And what we found was that, first of all, mice with more of these new brain cells were also more resilient to stress, and they were less anxious after they experienced chronic stress, compared to the mice with the lower numbers of the adult-born brain cells. And how did you measure that in mice? We basically um, use our experimental mice and we pair them with dominant aggressive mice for 10 days. And for these experimental mice, when they are being exposed to these hostile social interactions with an aggressive mouse, which is basically like bullying, um, that is very stressful to these experimental mice and it very robustly causes anxiety and social avoidance. And you observed the behaviours of these bullied mice and, and as you said, the mice with more new brain cells seemed less stressed and anxious, but what did that actually change in, in their brains? In order to see what effect stress has on the brain. We used a completely new technology which basically allowed us to look inside the brain of the mouse while the mouse is experiencing stress and anxiety-like behavior. And to do this we used miniature microscopes that we can attach to the brain of these mice while they are freely moving around. 
And this technique allowed us to see the activity of individual brain cells in the dentate gyrus region of the hippocampus while the mouse is experiencing stress and anxiety. And what we found was that stress increases the activity of the dentate gyrus. And in particular, stress increases the activity of a subset of cells in the dentate gyrus, which seems to be mostly responsive to the effects of stress. And when we then looked in our mice with normal levels of neurogenesis and in our mice with increased levels of neurogenesis, we found that the mice with the higher levels of neurogenesis actually have a dentate gyrus that is much less active. Uh, in response to stress. And we found that these stress-responsive cells in the dentate gyrus are inhibited by these new brain cells. And the new neurons inhibiting those cells is what reduces the, the stress response and, and long-term stress effects. Um, and are you hoping that understanding this brain area and what's going on there in detail could have direct impacts on how we treat or look at stress conditions in humans? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if we could find ways to, let's say, directly inhibit the dentate gyrus, then we may be able to actually find new strategies to treat psychiatric disorders in better ways or to even find new ways to prevent them. But this research is all in mouse brains at the moment. So how similar are the mechanisms likely to be in humans? In humans, it is still a topic of intense debate how many of these new brain cells actually exist at what age of development. So in humans, what is clear is that these new brain cells are most abundant until around puberty. So it may be that the effects that we have found in our paper could be particularly strong during early childhood development in humans. In mice, the picture is a little bit different because mice um, generate a lot more of these new brain cells and they do so until much later ages than humans do. So it's possible that new neurons might not be being created in adult human brains. So if that were the case, are the mechanisms in the, in the mice still going to be relevant, the fact that the inhibition of the dentate gyrus cells is, is what li seems linked to stress? Absolutely, yes. So it could be that in, in adulthood, when perhaps in humans the number of these adult-born brain cells are very low, or perhaps not even there at old ages, then what our mouse studies um, tell us is that we could basically use this inhibitory mechanism which may be independent of adult-born neurons, to then also cause these same effects in old age as well. And you did some experiments with the mice to see if the inhibition of the cells could actually be caused by something other than new neurons. So we basically directly inhibited the dentate gyrus, and we did that um, by using a genetically engineered protein that inhibits the firing of brain cells. And using that technique, we basically found that inhibiting the dentate gyrus directly mimics the effects of increasing neurogenesis. So when we inhibit the dentate gyrus during the experience of stress, mice were more resilient to the effects of stress and they came out being less anxious in our tests of anxiety-related behaviour. That was Christoph Annika of Columbia University. You can find his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally, this week, it's time for the news chat and physics reporter Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello, Adam. Now, there's been some work which is taking the idea of good bacteria to whole new levels. Can you detail uh, what's going on in this report? Yes. So this is a story by our DC, Washington, D.C.-based colleague, Sarah Reardon, who looked into a number of biotech companies that are looking to engineer bacteria that are similar to those harmless ones commonly found in the body for uh, treating various diseases. Now, could you give an example of what the kind of things they're looking to do are? Yeah, so for example, there's a genetic disorder 
where patients lack an enzyme that breaks down uh, an amino acid that is harmful if it builds up in the body in, in large amounts. So they engineered bacteria to produce this enzyme that breaks down the amino acid, and it's still at the early stages. Uh, regulators have, uh, have approved uh, clinical trials, but we still don't know. To me, that sounds like quite a specific uh, task for bacteria to do, but they're also considering harnessing bacteria to, to tackle diabetes and HIV infections. Yeah, so for example, another company is looking into bacterium that's uh, often used for making cheese, which is also found commonly in, in the vagina, uh, and it's been shown to help prevent um, infection by HIV. So the company is engineering the bacterium to make it more effective at this task. Now, this seems like something which could be quite risky, getting bacteria to do this job of protecting the body in one form or another. And in fact, this is a trend that many people are, are cautious about it because bacteria are very smart, as one of the sources mentioned. They can evolve uh, to do things that we didn't expect, and they can also trade genes among them, among different strains, different types of bacteria. So if you insert a human gene in a harmless type of bacterium, and then it ends up in some other bacteria, then you never know what might happen. Is there anything then that researchers can do to, to try and mitigate the risks that using bacteria might involve? Yes, there's various uh, precautions that uh, researchers are taking. For example, engineering the bacteria to make them less able to establish a colony inside the body, or including a, a sort of kill switch, which makes them unable to survive outside of the body so that they cannot be transmitted from one person to another. So with these kinds of solutions, does that mean then that this is just a viable approach for medicine and that we're going we're gonna to be able to use this for treating all sorts of conditions? I think it's too early to know if these techniques are going to work, if they're actually going to be effective at treating the, the various conditions that they're supposed to treat. And also it's too early to say if they will be safe. We're at very early stages of these clinical trials. From a very tiny story of bacteria to a rather more astronomical story, we are now looking at a mission to an asteroid. What, what's going on here, Davide? The uh, probe called Hayabusa 2 is now literally inching towards its final target, which is an asteroid called Ryugu. Is this the, the first time a probe has approached an asteroid in this way then? No, in fact, this is, so this is Hayabusa 2, and there was, before it, there was Hayabusa 1, which reached an asteroid in 2005. There's a, so these are uh, missions from JAXA, the Japanese space uh, agency. There's also been missions by, by NASA and by uh, the European Space Agency, but this is the first time that a probe is approaching a dark asteroid. They're some of the most common asteroids in the solar system, but they're also some of the most poorly understood. So why is an asteroid like this dark? The common assumption is that it's because it's rich in carbon compounds, but this is one of the things that uh, Hayabusa 2 will have to find out. So what's the probe actually hoping to do when it gets to this dark asteroid? It's a very exciting mission. It's going to do all sorts of things, uh, beginning with uh, mapping the surface with various instruments, and releasing as many as four different landers. 
these are going to be shoebox sized things not not very large uh landers like the ones on mars but um and then the probe itself will approach the asteroid and take samples from it and then eventually in a couple of years the, the plan is to return those samples back to earth where scientists can study them directly so the probe is actually going to delicately land on the on the asteroid and then take off again yeah so this you have to imagine this is an asteroid that is less than one kilometer across its gravitational attraction is extremely weak first of all the probe will hover over it uh rather than orbiting and then it will slowly descend and make a very soft touchdown for just minutes collect sample and then lift up again and hayabusa 2 has actually already started making observations so so far the probe has only begun its approach last week it, it, it got its first pictures from about 300 kilometers away and then this week it got to uh, within a few tens of kilometers and the first thing it measured was how fast the asteroid is spinning it which is good news because it doesn't spin too fast and it showed a surface with lots of boulders and and kind of like a boring landscape compared to for example the famous uh rubber duck shaped uh <laughs> comet that we all loved from a couple of years ago but uh it's only the beginning for the team actually involved in this do they have to work throughout all this to make sure everything goes to plan or is it to some extent automated now out of their hands no this is actually where the hard work begins they're going to have to make a lot of decisions important decisions beginning with identifying the best landing spots for for the landers where for example you know they don't hit a boulder or they don't get stuck in a crevasse thank you davide listeners don't forget you can find all the latest science news over at nature.com/news that's it for this week's show but don't forget you can get in contact with us on email we're podcast@nature.com or on twitter where we're at naturepodcast If you're a fan of the show and you'd like to leave us some stars or a review then that does help us get the show out to even more people. I'm Sharmini Bundell and I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me kiki palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.